You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. We're continuing this morning our three-part series. We're in part number two of our series on money and where our treasure is. Pastor DeBruin began this series last week, and Pastor York will complete it next week. And this morning we look at the text following the text that we looked at last week, Luke 12 at verse 22. Let us hear God's Word. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, yet they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father, we ask for you to open our eyes to see the truth of your word, the power of your promises given to us, In the clarity of your commands, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit, for we need your help to grasp these things and that our lives might truly be changed. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Do not worry about your life. That's a command from God, a command clearly given here by the Lord Jesus Christ a command that you and I are called to obey by the power of the Holy Spirit and by active trust in the promises of God. If we look at the context of this command, we see that our text is linked to the verses that preceded it, verses that we looked at with Pastor De Bruin last week, because in verse 22, Jesus says, Therefore... I tell you, do not worry. 
We saw last week that a man had come to Christ in verse 13 and said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wanted Jesus to arbitrate this inheritance case. But Jesus refused to cooperate. Instead, he gives a clear warning. Verse 15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you how to divide the inheritance. I'm not going to arbitrate this case, but I will address the spiritual issue here. Watch out for greed. When it comes to money and material things, if our hearts have made these things our treasure then Jesus is saying it will show up as greed or, as we come to this morning, as worry. Greed and worry, two two sides of the same coin, two different, slightly different manifestations of a heart that is in some way being ruled by money and material things. Today we are looking at worry, especially worry about money, although what we find certainly applies to worry about anything else, worry about our health, worry about our children, worrying about what somebody else might think of me. Worry, we would say, is obsessing about something that you ultimately can't control. Worry goes beyond healthy thinking. It goes beyond wise and biblical planning and forethought. And we could say it is thinking that is out of control, distracted thinking. Don't we all know what worry is? Because we all fall into it and we all wrestle with it at various times. You play the problem or the feared scenario over and over in your mind. It's like on one of those replay loops that you see the video over and over. It becomes your meditation, a meditation that leaves out God and God's power and God's promises to you. What does Jesus tell us about worry? Notice here that he doesn't just give us a bare command. Do not worry. Now, on to my next point. No, he graciously stoops to our weakness. He reasons with us. He gives us incredible promises. It's as if he's saying, I will give you something much better, something much higher, something more glorious to think about than your worries. In fact, when you bring your worry and anxiety into the light of what I am saying, it will not be able to stand. That's what Jesus is saying to us. This morning, I want us to look at two reasons and three promises. Two reasons and three promises that Jesus gives us so that we may fight our worry with the truth of God. And it's really not like it's five points here. It's really more like two or three main points. So don't worry too much about that. Reasons first. Reason number one. Life is more than food and clothes. Life is more than food or clothes. Verse 23, the first thing Jesus says after he commands this, he says, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Another way to put this is 
Life is really more than our material comforts or even our material necessities. Life is more than the things that we need. Think with me about this reason. Life is more than how many toys we have, how big our house is, how cool our car is. Life is more than what clothes we wear or what new high-tech gizmo I might need. My children got me an iPod for my birthday in May, and I had to wait a few weeks till one of them could show me how to use it and hook it up and, you know, get it downloaded. I wanted to download sermons. So my son was here the other week. He downloaded dozens and dozens of sermons in my iPod. I haven't plugged it into my ear yet, but I'm hoping to do that. I'm feeling really high-tech, so... I might just wear it around, and even if I don't know how to get it to go, at least I'll look cool, you know, with my iPod on. But talk about a reason that is counter-cultural to our society. Your life is more than things. That's the opposite message than we receive every day from the world, isn't it? We're swimming in a materialistic worldview, a message that is being screamed at us every day with with deafening vocal power. Life is all about your food and clothes and your bank account and doing what you need to get all those things. But Jesus says, no, your life is more than food. And we're going to see that ultimately as we look at this text, your life is about God, about knowing God, about seeking first His kingdom. But as we think about this first reason, remember that Jesus was speaking to people in a subsistent, subsistence culture. They had almost nothing. It's really hard for me to relate to that, to what their lives must have been like. Even during the times in my life when Patty and I had been in pretty tight financial straits and and we couldn't get the car fixed because we didn't have money to get the car fixed or we didn't have enough money to pay the heating bill and we had to work really hard at that, somehow getting enough money together to do that. Even at those times, We had some kind of food in the house. We might have been using up the rest of the peanut butter jar, or we might have macaroni and cheese for three nights in a row. But still, we had food. We had flour in the flour container, and we had rice, I'm sure. But think of Jesus' hearers. They were poor subsistence farmers, very poor for the most part. No electricity, no running water no crop insurance, no health care, no bank accounts, no plan B if the crop failed or if a blight came or if it didn't rain. We were watching some of the History Channel show the other week called Expedition Africa. This is a new History Channel show that we've watched once or twice. And this is a team retracing by foot one of the famous routes of uh, the explorer Henry Stanley, the one who had the meeting with uh, Dr. Livingston and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, you know, that famous story. But on this episode, the team was really out of food for the most part, for the most part, and they needed to somehow get some or buy some. And and here they are in the middle of nowhere in Tanzania. And finally, they come to this little village, if you want to call it a village, two or three little mud huts, Uh, one scrawny little chicken pecking in the dirt, you see. You know, it's very, very poor. And this group of, I'd say, 20 or so on this uh, team, and they probably had uh, photographers and everything else. They they probably had their own food, of course. Uh, Well, they asked through an interpreter, do you have food? Can we buy food? And the people in the village, just a few of there, say, no, 
we don't have any food. And they're all very, very thin. And, and they don't have really any food. The chicken could be killed, I guess. That's about it. But they, they are subsistence farmers. And they had these little crops there. Maybe they had a little something of some, some kind of food hidden away somewhere. But they had to go on and try to find food somewhere else. They had nothing. Well, those are the kind of people Jesus is speaking to here. That's what that culture and society was like. They sometimes didn't have enough food. They sometimes had to put their children to bed hungry. I've never had to do that. If they were well-to-do, then they might have had an outer garment or a cloak, a, a coat of some kind. How many of us have closets full of coats? So when Jesus tells them, your life is more than food, he's not just talking about excess food. He's not talking about being going, going out to dinner every night at a nice restaurant. He's not speaking to Westerners with a cupboard full of food. He's talking to people who were not sure if they would have food tomorrow, where tomorrow's meal might come from. And even to them, Jesus says, don't worry because life's not about food, even subsisting on food. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. Reason number one shows us that when we worry, we are buying into a faulty view of life, a a view that elevates the things of this world, even the necessary things of this earth, a view that leaves out God and His purposes and His promises and His grace to us every day. Reason number two, it's this. Worry is trying to control what is ultimately God's. Worry is trying to control what is ultimately God's. Verses 25 and 26. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? What's Jesus telling us here? He's saying, you could worry for a week straight without stopping, and it wouldn't add an hour to your life. He's underlining the truth that ultimately God is in control of our lives. He is the sovereign one. He is the one in control. He's the one who's appointed all the days of our lives in His book. You see, this reason is saying that worry is a failure to rest in the providence of God. A failure to rest in the providence of God. Now, this isn't an excuse to be passive in life or not to plan or to take initiative or to work. No, but Jesus is showing us that worry somehow takes upon itself what is only God's. In the back of worry is this thought, I want control of my life. I am not content to leave these things in God's hands. I must somehow be able to guarantee what tomorrow will bring, whether it's about finances or whether it's worrying about something else. The Christian author, Jerry Bridges, puts it this way. I I like what he says about this. He says, I have come to the conclusion that my anxiety is triggered not so much by a distrust in God as by an unwillingness to submit to and cheerfully accept His agenda for me. 
You hear what he's saying? He's not saying that it's not an issue of trust. It is. One of the foremost things he talks about is the need to trust the Lord. But he says it's not only that, and he says in his life, it's by this unwillingness to submit to and cheerfully accept his, God's agenda for me. And so he says, I worry because I don't want to submit to what God's agenda might be. I want to be in control of my life. I want to set the agenda for my life. I want to guarantee what happens tomorrow and next week and about all these things that I'm concerned about. There is a question for us to examine. Am I willing to cheerfully accept God's agenda? Why is money such a powerful alternative to God? One reason is that money gives the illusion of control, doesn't it? Isn't that why we worry about it? Yes, the more money you have, the greater temptation to think that you are in control. Don't we all think of someone like Bill Gates and think, well, he's in control of his life. Look, when you've got billions of dollars like that, you can just snap your finger and someone can do this for you and fix that for you. And there's this illusion of control that you can protect yourself from any eventuality. But you and I know that actually that's not true. I've always loved movies and books with a time travel theme. I remember as a boy reading H.G. Wells' classic, The Time Machine. I loved that book. It's always fun to think about how people from the past would be amazed at the modern technology and innovations and things that we have in our day and age. But think if a first century Jew living in Palestine, hearing Christ's words, were somehow zapped to our day and age, and here they are now living in my house for a while with central air conditioning and nice beds and clean bathrooms. Well, they could probably get used to that pretty fast, wouldn't you think? And they would be amazed, and they would be more insulated from need, you know, if they were here living my life. Sure, they'd have to get a job, and I think they'd probably get a job at LBC teaching Hebrew, right? But would they really be more secure? You know, after they lived here for a while, they might have that illusion that they were more secure, but the answer ultimately is no. Their every breath is dependent on God and His sovereign mercy and grace. So, no matter how uncertain your life may be, whether you're unemployed right now or not sure where tomorrow's meal will come from, or whether your bank account and 401k are overflowing, all of us are utterly dependent on a sovereign and loving God. And so, this reason cuts out the very heart of worry. Worry does not put us in control. God is the one in control. Well, now, three promises about money and things that we find in our text. And remember, as we look at these three, that the antidote to worry is fighting it with faith in God. That's why Jesus says at the end of verse 28, O ye of little faith, O ye of little faith, their need and our need is for greater faith in our God, to take the wind out of worry's sails, to put our faith and our trust in the Lord and not in the things of this earth. Promise number one then, you are loved by God. You are loved by God. Verse 24, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Jesus says, look at the ravens. 
Look at the crows. Ravens are in the crow family, very similar to crows. Interesting, I don't know what birds, what all birds they had in Israel in that day and age. Certainly doves, we read about doves, pigeons, sparrows, Jesus refers to them. But Jesus doesn't pick a beautiful songbird. He doesn't say, look at the cardinal, or look at the goldfinch, or look at the mockingbird, or something like that. He points us to crows, ravens, loud, bothersome, scavengers, the birds that these farmers, if they did use scarecrows, would have put up scarecrows to keep them away. You know, every spring we, we, we put out bird seed for the birds in the winter, and we like seeing the variety of birds that we get. But every spring, we know when it's time to stop putting out the bird seed when the starlings come. And the starlings come in and invade and keep all the other birds out. It's funny, my grandson, who's four, my oldest grandson, has picked up on my, you know, despising star- starlings. So when he comes in and he loves to look at the birds out of our kitchen window, and he, you know, he comes up and says, oh, starlings, you know, like, boy, I got to watch what I say here. He picks up pretty fast on me. Um, but, you know, it would have been the starlings of Christ's day, the crows. How do they get their food? Well, any way they can. These are smart birds. They have to use all their wits to survive. They're the ones who work on the roadkill out there, you know. But they don't have storerooms, Jesus says. They don't have barns. And Jesus says, yet God feeds them. And then he adds, how much more valuable you are than birds. You are human beings made in the image of God, loved by God. And the promise Jesus gives us is right there. God feeds the birds. You are more valuable to God than birds. Won't you trust that God will feed you? If he feeds the crows who just manage to get by using their wits in any way they can, and obviously it's ultimately God who feeds them, can't you believe that you are more valuable than the crows? You are loved by God. Promise number two really states the same thing as promise number one, but even in more clear terms. God will take care of your needs. God will take care of your needs. Look at verses 27 and 28. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says, look at the flowers. We have some flowers in our front garden that are barely, really beautiful this year. I'm not sure what we did right, but it, it looks really good. But it won't be long till they'll be dried up and, you know, time to cut them back or pull them out or whatever the case might be. They're only there for a short time. But Jesus is saying, if God so pours out His beauty and His care for flowers, how much more will He do that for you and for me? Won't He care for your needs? The lilies, they don't they don't uh, sew and spin. They don't labor and spin. Yet they're more beautiful than Solomon, arrayed in his finest robes. Well, let's stop and think about promises one and two before we go on here. When you find that worry is winning in your heart, when you are being distracted and overwhelmed by anxious thoughts, the way ahead 
is to fight fire with fire, really, as we might say. God gives us his great and precious promises so that we will more deeply trust in him. Here's a little quiz. Why do you worry? If you had to jot down, why do you worry? You'd probably, if you're like me, you'd write down, well, because there's too much month left at the end of the money or something else that you worry about. You would, if you have to give an answer, uh, you would point to some need, some problem, some shortfall and say, I worry because of that thing. In other words, we answer the question with an answer that's about something out there. I worry because I'm two months behind on the mortgage and I'm not sure how I'm going to pay it. Or I worry because I've had my hours cut back at work. But the reason Jesus gives is not out there. No, it's in here. It's in my heart. He says, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, why do we worry? We worry because we are of little faith. We worry because of something in here. We worry because we lose sight of our God. We lose sight of God. And these great promises Jesus gives bring our sight back on the faithfulness of our God. How much more will he feed you? How much more will he clothe you? Promises are like pegs that mountain climbers hammer into sheer cliff faces. And often uh, the uh, walk of faith with Christ feels more like climbing a perpendicular granite cliff. And we're going against all of our natural inclinations and the way of the world, and we're seeking to put our faith in our God. And you, are, you and I need the pegs of God's promises to hold to by faith. And sometimes it's just inching our way along on its, what, what it seems like a granite cliff wall. That's how promises function in the Christian walk and life. You are loved by God in Christ. And how much more will God care for your needs? But of course, in His time and in His way, according to His sovereign will. And so we must trust in Him. Promise number three. The last promise is the greatest. God will give you Himself. God will give you Himself. Your heavenly Father will give you Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ will give you Himself. Look at verses 29 and 30. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Familiar words. But just look at what Jesus is saying here. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. So, in other words, worry is tied into setting our hearts on the things of this world. Yes, things that we may need. We need food to survive. We need clothes. Interesting, he's speaking about food and clothes, and Paul talks about that. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. He doesn't include shelter in that list, although certainly we need that in some sense, but it's not like we need a four-bedroom house. He doesn't include that on the list. 
people in that day just had little houses of various, very rudimentary kind. But certainly we need these things. But how easy it is to set our hearts on these things. I think it's very instructive for us that he really elaborates what worry is all about. Don't set your heart on these things. Don't be so preoccupied. Don't be so engrossed in them. Jesus says food and clothing, but he could add a whole slew of things for 21st century Americans, couldn't he? Don't set your heart on, and the list could go on for half an hour of things that we're tempted to set our hearts on. Verse 30 then, he says, for, the reason for, the pagan world runs after all such things. And how true that still is. The Gentiles, the nations. He's talking about those who don't know God. This is the natural way of life, to run after these things, to think that's what life is all about. And he says, your father knows that you need them. What an encouragement. It's not that God is some distant deity who really doesn't care about what these mere humans are doing or or what they need. No, he knows that you need the basics of life. And often he gives you much more than that. He certainly gives us much more than that. And then comes the promise in verse 31. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and the reign of the king. Seeking the kingdom is seeking the king and submitting to his lordship in all of life and making his will and uh, uh, your will and making his goal and his priorities your priorities and trusting in his word and loving what he loves and doing his commands. Seeking the kingdom is giving God your very life in humble and joyful submission and faith in him. And if you've never come to Christ, maybe that's the crux of the heart of your worry, that you're seeking to be the captain of your life and seeking to control the events of your life and the future of your life, and you need to bow before the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, and confess to him your sin and call upon him to to save you from your sin and to give you new life in himself. And the promise is, as you do that, God gives you himself and everything else that you need in this life as well. Isn't that what it says here? But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. We ask, as well as what? Well, as well as the more important things, kingdom things. And what's at the height of kingdom things? God himself. So the promise here is God gives you himself and, in addition, he gives you these other minor things as well, things that you need to survive on in this earth. What a promise to just blow up worry in our lives. God will give you himself. What more could you want? What more could we need? God himself, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, with us always, pouring his love into our hearts and satisfying us with himself. Brian Fickert, who is a Covenant College professor, tells in one of his books about his experience in Kabira, the million-person slum in Nairobi that some of people from our church have gone to over the years in short-term trips. And he writes in his book about his experience there at one point. He says, one Sunday I was walking with a staff member through one of Africa's largest slums, the massive Kabira slum of Nairobi. The conditions were simply inhumane. 
People lived in shacks constructed out of cardboard boxes. Foul smells gushed out of open ditches carrying human and animal excrement. I had a hard time keeping my balance as I continued and continually slipped on oozy brown substances that I hoped were mud but feared were something else. Yikes. Children picked through garbage dumps looking for anything of value. As we walked deeper and deeper into the slum, my sense of despair increased. This place is completely God-forsaken, I thought to myself. Then to my amazement, right there among the dung, I heard the sound of a familiar hymn. There must be Western missionaries conducting an open-air service here, I thought to myself. As we turned the corner, my eyes landed on the shack from which the music bellowed. Every Sunday, 30 slum dwellers crammed into this 10-by-20-foot sanctuary to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church was made out of cardboard boxes that had been opened up and stapled to studs. It wasn't pretty, but it was a church, a church made up of some of the poorest people on earth. When we arrived at the church, I was immediately asked to preach the sermon. As a good Presbyterian, I quickly jotted down some notes about the sovereignty of God and was looking forward to teaching this congregation the historic doctrines of the Reformation. But before the sermon began, the service included a time of sharing and prayer. I listened as some of the poorest people on the planet cried out to God, Jehovah Jireh, Please heal my son as he is going blind. Merciful Lord, please protect me when I go home today, for my husband always beats me. Sovereign King, please provide my children with enough food today as they are hungry. As I listened to these people praying to be able to live another day, I thought about my ample salary, my life insurance policy, my health insurance policy, my two cars, my house, etc., I realize that I do not really trust in God's sovereignty on a daily basis, as I have sufficient buffers in place to shield me from most economic shocks. I realize that when these folks pray the fourth petitions of the Lord's the fourth petition of the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread, their minds do not wander as mine so often does. I realize that while I have sufficient education and training to deliver a sermon on God's sovereignty with no forewarning, these slum dwellers were trusting in God's sovereignty just to get them through the day. And I realized that these people had a far deeper intimacy with God than I probably will ever have in my entire life. Do you hear what Brian is saying? These people may not have had much, but they knew God. Could it be that the financial hardships or whatever hardships you are experiencing are designed by your loving Heavenly Father to teach you more deeply of Himself, to seek first His kingdom, to know the King, to rejoice in His love? May that be the goal of your life, not to worry, but to rest, to rest in the Lord and in His promise to give you himself. Let us pray. Father, you have given us so much materially, but we know that it pales in comparison to the spiritual riches you give to anyone who asks 
to anyone who repents, to anyone who comes to you and pleads with you and calls upon you through Jesus Christ. Thank you for seating us in the heavenly realms in Christ. And may we know more deeply what it means to abide by faith in that reality, to rest in you, our rock and our redeemer, and not to worry, but to be of stronger faith. So build us up, we pray, and may our hearts be always stayed upon Jehovah our Lord. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord.